0: you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Mark chapter 9, and we'll start in verse 2. And while you're turning there, I just uh, was overwhelmed hearing Russell share all those graduates and where they're going and what they're doing. It's pretty remarkable, isn't it, to just hear what all the graduates who are leaving forth from our church and what they'll be going towards. And it's really also pretty amazing that we have a youth minister, Russell, who has been here for over 10 years So when your children are in the children's ministry, Russell knows them. He's seen classes graduate, and it's just a joy of the tenure of many of our staff mates who walk with your kids from VBS days all the way up through graduation. And it's fun to hear Russell say that he knew these kids when they were six years old and begin to form relationships as he shared the gospel and began to pour into them to prepare them for their going and to hear what all that they will do from defense, technology, to exercise science, to nursing, it just, oh, it's such a joy to hear what those who have come forth from our church will go out of this place, being sent out as missionaries to go and make disciples, to learn, and then influence their world with the kingdom. That's just a joy to hear and be a part of. Well, this morning, we are launching our way back into the book of Mark Uh, As you may recall, that it was January of 2021 when I began the series on the book of Mark, and we have uh, labored through week after week and took some weeks off here and there. And then uh, seven months ago, when we had our uh, little disruption here, uh, we took a little break, and it's been seven months since we've been in the book of Mark. Now, I would imagine that you don't quite remember what I preached on last. Anybody? I wouldn't do that to you. Uh, I barely remembered what I preached on, so I went back and looked it up, and um, we left out in Mark chapter 8, uh, Jesus' question to Peter, who do you say that I am? And that's your first question at the top, who do you say that I am? And as we go back, it's, uh, I find it important as a preacher, uh, I like preaching through books of the Bible, because as you preach through them, you begin to see themes emerge throughout the Scripture, Right? It's almost like uh, listening to a symphony and hearing, hearing constant themes throughout. One of my favorite movies or trilogies is Star Wars. And I love when a character comes up, there's a theme that plays behind them. So you know in a central part of a movie when this particular character is going to have their big moment, you hear that theme, that orchestration play behind it, and you know this is going to be a big moment for that character. Such is true in Scripture. As you begin to look at uh, the particular gospel writer and you begin to see things begin to emerge, you begin to see these constant themes being woven throughout the gospel accounts. We've seen uh, since Jesus came on the scene in Mark chapter 1 that he spoke in the temple with much authority. The scribes and those who were listening were were shocked at Jesus' authority in speaking the word. As we progressed, you saw over and over again the people shocked and amazed by Jesus' authority in teaching and professing and proclaiming the goodness of the kingdom. Right? You would see Jesus on the, the waves and, and the disciples scared to death of what was happening. And they said, they would exclamated, hey, isn't it amazing that even the winds and the seas obey him? As Jesus would heal people, people are shocked Jesus has this authority to make the, the blind men to see and the deaf to hear and the lame to walk, the authority in Jesus to do these miraculous signs and wonders. The breaking of the bread and feeding of the 5,000, 4,000, the incredible nature by which Jesus could take so little and make so much of it. And over and over and over again through Mark chapter one to Mark chapter eight, we've seen Jesus' miraculous power and his authority take shape. And we saw the week before we had our fire, we see this moment begin to shift in Mark's gospel where Jesus was moving from these miraculous signs to begin to point towards the cross. They begin to point towards Calvary. It's almost like Mark's Gospel Part 2. Everything begins to shift in the story, and we begin to see Jesus' uh, expectation towards the cross and towards Calvary. In Mark chapter 8, we saw that Jesus is foretelling his death and re- his resurrection, and that it would go through, it would be paved with suffering. And Peter, in this moment, says, Jesus, you will not suffer. You can't suffer. You're the Messiah. And so Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Right, y'all remember that wonderful moment in Peter's life? Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Well, it was right before that that Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And Peter had a wonderful moment, and he says, you are the Christ. And Jesus exclaims, this is true, and tells him not to tell anybody until the resurrection. And then his next moment, get behind me, Satan. Which would leave us to where the question that we left off eight, seven months ago is who do you say that I am? This morning, we're still looking at that central question. We've gone through Easter, and we recognize that Jesus resurrected. He died on the cross, and He is now living victorious. But we still are wrestling all these months later with that central question that Jesus asked to Peter, who do you say that I am? It's a question that you still, to this day, need to grapple with and need to wrestle with. It's the most basic Elementary truth of the gospel, who do you say that Jesus is? We get that question right. Everything seems to fall into place. We get that question wrong. Everything after it falls out of place. In our home, we are we're learning a lot of simple math, right? We're at that age. Riding in the car, one plus one, what does it equal? All God's people said thank you for not saying amen, right? It is it is two, right? So we are learning the simple truths of mathematics in our home. One and one, it's two. Right? Two and two is four. 100 plus 100 is 200. Anything times zero is? Y'all are awake. Come on now. You got it. Right? So one and one, two. And we have been ingraining this into our kids because if we get this right, they can move on one day to division and multiplication and square roots and all sorts of other stuff. But if they miss the simplicity of one plus one, nothing else in their entire mathematical life will ever make sense. Right? They can sit in classrooms and hear all these incredible things about science and about physics and about learning about division and long division and when you have variables and when some reason you add numbers and letters into the situations, everything begins to make sense if you've gotten one plus one, right? And if you were to somehow say one plus one equals three, nothing else past that moment will ever make sense. And when we come square to the face of, who do you say that Jesus is? Now, if we can give a pat answer, right? he's, my, he's my Lord. He's my Savior. But until we deeply recognize that truth and allow it to change things about us, everything about us, a- and there are times where we run into problems and difficulties and we're looking down in the physics lane in our classrooms trying to figure out, what have I done wrong in this physics issue? But in reality, it's it's the root of one plus one, not equaling two in our lives. That we have not seen Jesus as the Christ, the authority in our life, the one that we run to, the one that we cling to, the gospel truth that we hold on to. And we've tried to run forward and be great husbands and wives and fathers and mothers. We try to be Christian businessmen. But at the end of the day, we haven't trusted in Jesus with our life. He's not our everything. And so everything seems to be out of whack in our lives. And so this morning, we go back seven months to where we left off, right across the street here, to say, who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say that Jesus is? And as we go through these next few moments, looking at the Mount of Transfiguration, friends, this still means everything for us. Jesus is not just an Elijah, not just a Moses, and not just up there as one of those Figures. So let's read and let's digest this central question that we see at the top of the page. Who do you say that Jesus is? Let me read for us Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 13. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a mountain uh, by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant and tensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. uh, longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only and as they were coming down the mountain he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the son of man had risen from the dead so they kept the matter to themselves questioning what is this rising from the dead all about and they asked him why do the scribes say that first elijah must come and he said to them elijah does come first to restore all things and how is it written that the son of man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt but i tell you that elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Let's pray. Dear Lord, would you, as always, allow your word to be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our pathway. Teach us. Open, your, open our hearts to receive that which we need today, that we not leave the sanctuary the same as we came in. Lord, would the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, be pleasing to you, Lord. You are our rock and our redeemer. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The first on your outline is the mountaintop moment of transfiguration, right? The mountaintop moment of transfiguration. And we love mountaintop moments, don't we? Like we love going away on vacation and going away to youth camp and kids' camp or going away on a marriage retreat. and We, we love these mountaintop moments, right? right? Our honeymoon after we get married, this mountaintop-type moment. And we, we love and talk about these great moments in our lives that are just on the mountaintop. And we get that from moments like this, the mountain of transfiguration. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up the mountain by themselves. And as they get up this mountain, G- Peter, James, and John are oftentimes privy to things that other disciples are not privy to. Right? They're there when Jesus raises Jairus' daughter. They're there in the Garden of Gethsemane. Right? So these guys get the inside seat to what's happening. And as they climb this mountain of transfiguration, All of a sudden, out of nowhere, Jesus transfigures before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. I want to just take a moment, because oftentimes, and we talk about this a lot, we can read scripture and we can just be like, well, that's cool. Take a moment to just try to put yourself in Peter, James, or John's spot here. That they are walking up the mountain with Jesus, and all of a sudden, This historical here. All of a sudden, Jesus would transfigure before them. I mean, close your eyes and just try to imagine what that must have been like to be Peter, James, and John. You're walking with Jesus who looks just like one of us, and he gets up there to the mountain, and all of a sudden, in the blink of an eye, he transfigures into another form, and his clothes are wider than any of the dresses we'll see at 11 o'clock for the girls walking down uh, in their graduation dresses, wider than anything, his face radiant white. I mean, this is astounding. Jesus would transfigure before them. Now, we see that this moment of Jesus transfiguring into a glorified state or into a glorified moment is not something that just happens here. We see that at Christmas we celebrate Jesus incarnating here on this earth. We see in Philippians chapter 2, though He was in the form of Uh, God did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So here in an instant, Jesus transfigures back into his glorified state. This is a difficult thing for us to understand, difficult thing for theologians and historians to understand what this looked like, what this visually must have been like. But at the end of the day, Jesus would transfigure into a glorified sense as we recognize that from Philippians chapter 2, that Jesus came and took the form of a servant. So in this, here comes Elijah and Moses. I mean, think about Up, this ups the ante, one Jesus transfigures and he's radiant and white and glorified and all that that would entail. But then two dead guys show up, Elijah and Moses, not just any dead guys, but Elijah and Moses show up and it just says they begin to talk to Jesus. Wouldn't you love to know what they're talking about? It's one of those moments where when you get to heaven you say, hey, what, Jesus, what, what were y'all talking about there on the Mount of Transfiguration? But then Peter, Peter steps up and says maybe the largest understatement in all of Scripture, right? I mean, Jesus is transfigured. He's talking to to Elijah and Moses. And can't you just see those guys are terrified, right? We see in Scripture when angelic beings come around that people are terrified at it. And so Jesus is transfigured. He's white as can be, radiant white in in His glory. You see two dead guys, Elijah and Moses, standing there talking to Jesus. And and you know that the disciples are probably like, You should say something. Hey, why don't you be the one? And remember, Peter, the last time we have anything recorded about Peter, Jesus has said, Get behind me, Satan. So you know, Peter's the guy who I guess feels like it's his opportunity to try to redeem himself. So Peter comes up and says, Hey, Jesus, Rabbi, this is really good, right? It's good that we're here. I mean, what a statement, right? Rabbi, this is good. It's good that you and it's good that we're even here. You know, and and we want to make this kind of permanent. Can we build some tents or some shelters? I mean, and and the Bible even records that they didn't know what to say, they're terrified. Right, so give them a little bit of a, a benefit of the doubt here. They're, they are terrified. They don't know what to say. They don't know what to do. They're just happy that they're there, right? You ever have one of those moments, you, you don't know that you're supposed to be there. You're just, you're just glad to be there. And here, Peter, James, and John are just standing there, taking it all in, and it says, hey, let's make some tents for one of you and for all of you because we're, we're just glad to be here and we are terrified. And honestly, this isn't that dumb of a thing to say that this mountaintop moment, this mountaintop experience is such a splendid moment that for Peter, James, and John, they want to stay there. Right? They believe that at some point God was going to tabernacle with his people, that he was going to dwell amongst them. So for Peter to say, hey, hey, Lord, why don't we build some shelters and we can just stay on this mountain? See, over and over in Scripture, we see Jesus didn't come to stay in a glorified state to stay on the mountain, but he came to live and die. Right before this, Jesus has said that the road to the resurrection is paved in suffering. And so, so many times in Scripture, it would be easier for Jesus to say, you know what? Man, we've had eight chapters of foolishness. You guys cannot get it together. You know what? I'm just going to stay here in this glorified state. Why don't you know what? Build the shelters. I'm going to stay up here on this mountain. Or even before the Christmas season that we celebrate, Jesus easily could have said, you know what? It is better up here in heaven. You guys have not got it together. I'm going to stay up here in heaven in this glorified state. I'm not going to empty myself, taking the form of a servant, and I'm not going to die on a cross for y'all. Several weeks ago, as we looked at Easter, Jesus hanging on the cross as the chief priests and the scribes came by and mocked Jesus and said, if you really are the Son of God, come down off that cross and let the angels minister to you. At any one of those moments, if Jesus would have said, you know what, it would be better for me to come down off this cross and be ministered to by legions of angels. You know what, it would be better for me to stay up on this mountain with Moses and Elijah. You know, it would be better for me to stay up in heaven and not come down to this earth and die on the cross. If any of these moments, if Peter would have convinced Jesus to stay up on the mountain, Jesus would not have made it to the resurrection. Jesus would not have made it to the cross. And so here, even in the awestruck wonder of what Peter, James, and John are seeing, still they don't understand that Jesus is demonstrating Himself to them, that He's showing them that He is the glorified Son of God, and He has come. He is stainless and matchless and perfect, that His garments are so white that there is no blemish on Him, that He is making His way to the cross. But number two, you see on the back of your outline that in this moment, the law and the prophets are being fulfilled. The law and the prophets find their fulfillment. Many scholars would ask, why Moses and why Elijah? Right? Why not others to be up on the Mount of Transfiguration? Why Moses and Elijah? In Moses and in Elijah, you see the fulfillment and you see the representation of both the law and the prophets. Think back for a moment of who Moses was. Moses was the deliverer who came to set the Israelites free from their captivity. Moses is that chief deliverer that would lead the people out of their captivity into the promised land. Moses would be he who would ascend the Mount of Sinai and receive the Ten Commandments as an embodiment of the law. Elijah speaks for God. He is God's prophet to the people. Then in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law of the prophets, but I have come to fulfill them. Yeah. And then think about that in light of Luke chapter 24, verse 27, when Jesus begins to, uh, beginning with the Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in Scripture all the things concerning himself. How amazing is in Luke chapter 24. Jesus begins to outline for the apostles. All the things that have been written about him all throughout Scripture, that everything continues to point to Jesus. As we read Genesis, as we read the Old Testament, we see all of Scripture is pointing constantly and constancy to Jesus. Over and over, we see these landmarks that just show Jesus would be coming. Jesus is coming. Jesus is the one. Jesus is the one that would be greater, and he is coming to fulfill. As Moses put the serpent on the pole and looked to the serpent, and you would be healed, and say that there would be one who would be greater. And so the law and the prophets find their fulfillment in Jesus. And then number three, where we'll camp out for just a few more bonus moments. As Peter says, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us build a shelter for you. Seemingly keeping from Peter, from saying anything else, the cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out from the cloud that said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Number three on your outline is simple. Simply, the simple words to the disciples. Here in this cloud, the Father speaks out in a bellowing tone to the disciples, saying, "This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him." Possibly one of the most simple admonitions in all of Scripture. In the midst of the glorified Savior, this voice from heaven, the Father just simply says, "This is my beloved Son." Listen to Him. In essence, obey Him. Follow Him. You see Acts chapter 3, verse 22, 22, quoting Deuteronomy 18, 15. See their interweaving of Scripture here. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to Him in whatever He tells you. How beautiful is the interweaving of Scripture from Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, to Acts chapter 3, verse 22, to this moment on the Mount of Transfiguration when when God would come down from heaven and say, this is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Friends, this morning, that, that question still rings true in our hearts right now. That admonition of the Father to the Son, to the disciples to say this here. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. It reminds me of Jesus did his first miracle in John chapter 2 as he changed the water into wine. What did his mother say to the servants? Hey, hey guys, just do whatever he tells you. And y'all remember the moment the servants are coming around. Mary just says, hey, this is my son. Do whatever he tells you because whatever he tells you is going to be good. Just follow him, obey him, just listen to him. Whatever he tells you, it is good. So that would then come to us. I just ask you in the most loving and compassionate way as we go back to our first question, who do you say that I am, and to where that we are right now? Are you listening to Jesus? And I get the sense that it's easy to simply say, Yes, I am, or He is my Savior, or who do you say that I am, He's my Lord. I'm asking, are you intently listening and obeying the calling of Jesus in your life? I recognize that there is a lot of noise in this world that is so loud. Our flesh can yell so loudly. This world can yell so loudly. But friends, have you tuned your ears to hear from Jesus? Are you listening? Are you trusting in Jesus? Not your feelings, not your flesh, but are you listening to Jesus? And so often when you partner these two questions together, who do you say that I am, and are you listening to Jesus? At times in our lives, when things get bad, we simply take Jesus off the shelf and say, Jesus, what you got for me? At times we're walking through a valley, we would take Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm ready for you. What you got for me? Help me through this. And once we're through it, we put him back on the side table, we put him back on the shelf, we put him back into his normal Sunday morning at 8.30 spot, and then we continue living as if it is of no consequence. I'm asking, are we waking up in the morning and say, Jesus, would you call unto me today? Lord, would your word speak to me today? Lord, would I I follow what you say? Would I obey your commands in my life? Would Would I follow you with my life? As we're walking through our days, we're, we're begging and saying, Lord, would you just lead me with your wisdom, with your guidance? Lord, would I obey your word as the authority in my life? Because at some point, Jesus and the disciples come down from the mountain. We see as they, this voice comes from heaven in verse 9, we see that as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. You see, that's the last question on your outline. What might this rising from the dead mean? And I read that with the smile on my face, thinking about the disciples coming down the mountain, having this mountaintop experience. And all they can think about is, what does this rising from the dead mean? And you and I are in the privy position. We know what this rising from the dead means, Right? The disciples are questioning, what does this mean, Jesus is going to rise from the dead? What is this? What could this possibly mean that we can't tell anybody until the Son of Man might rise from the dead? What does this mean? And the joy for us is we know precisely what it means. It means that we have life in His name. It means that He is risen from the dead. He is victorious. And so for you and I, we know precisely what this rising from the dead means. We have all the head knowledge of what it means for us as believers. But has it has it taken root in our souls? That if Jesus rose from the dead victorious. If Jesus is alive today. Then who do you say that he is? Let's pray together. Dear Lord, would you would you continually teach us would you continually Walk with us. Or we, we're amazed by this moment in history when you transfigured, reminding us that you are the perfect, unblemished Son of God. And even in that, as we recognize the beauty and splendor of your glorified state, we recognize what you gave up, how you emptied yourself This was no small feat or small task, that you emptied yourself, that you took on the form of human skin. And that at any of those moments, you could have easily just said, I'm done with these people, I'm done with this mess, I'm done with this sin, I'm done with these people who can't get it together. I'm going to tabernacle here on this mountain. I'm going to stay in my glorified state. I'm going to come down off that cross or I'm not even going to enter into heaven. But you willingly endured the cross and our shame and you have risen victorious. So the the echoes of Easter continue even today. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for what you've done. And Lord, I, I pray in my own heart today. Lord, I would listen and I would obey Your calling in my life, that I would read Your Word, and that my heart would not be stubborn against it, but that I would submit myself to Your calling and Your will in my life. Lord, I love You, and I thank You for Jesus. In His name we pray. Amen. As we come to this invitation time, we'll sing hymn number 320, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And there is no more fitting hymn that we could sing to conclude this time than Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. As you look full in His glorious face, as you look full in who Jesus is, what He's called you towards, the difficulties, the strife, the struggle that we face on this side of heaven become strangely dim as we look to the face of Jesus. So maybe this morning, you need to hold your problems up to the face of Jesus. You need to hold your issues up to the face of Jesus, to the reality that Jesus has come to take away all of your sins and give you a peace that surpasses all understanding. Whether you need to join our church or trust in Jesus for the very first time or release things off your shoulders onto this altar, this moment that we sing, hymn number 320, is geared for you to respond however the Lord would lead you. Let's stand and let's sing and respond. Hymn number 320.